Welcome to the St Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Liz Crow. And it has been a while, Liz, since we have chatted on a podcast. Uh, I think lots has been happening for both of us over the last few months and years, um, but it's lovely to be back talking to you again and talking about, well, quite a difficult topic, I guess. Yes, today we decided that we're going to discuss the never spoken about topic of what does well-being look like when you actually feel broken by the work that you do. And I think it's important to say at this point that we're not talking about the everyday broken. We're probably talking about that once in a career moment or happening that occurs to you out of the blue, perhaps catches you off guard, takes you completely by surprise and knocks you completely sideways. I know that both of us have had occasions like this over the last year to 18 months, and we'll probably touch on those. Regular readers of the blog will have already found two articles by Liz that discuss this topic in great depth. But in this podcast, we're going to talk in person, expand on some of the themes and give you some extra information and insight, which we hope will be useful. Liz, why don't you start off? What does it mean to be broken? First of all, I would like to say that this isn't just that really bad day or something that feels rather sad or something that makes you feel disillusioned. What we're going to talk about today is something that really has a major psychological and physical impact on you. In the moment when this is happening to you, it is so terrifying and you feel completely isolated and alone. And we wanted to talk about it to try and break down some of those barriers and to perhaps normalise how awful it can feel in the moment. I think that this can happen, as you say, completely out of the blue. And for some people, it can be cumulative. You have some big knocks, then you have too many big knocks and it just stops. And for me, I guess there's probably been five times in my career where I've really felt hugely impacted to the point that I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to continue with the job. However, something happened to me that really made me think that I might have to resign. There may be one or two people left in the world who haven't heard of Liz Crow and what she does. For that one or two individuals, why don't you just tell us, Liz, about your everyday day job? What is your job? What does it mean? What does it mean day to day? I'm the senior social worker in a paediatric intensive care unit. I also run a team of social workers who only work in critical care services such as ED, burns, cardiac and the emergency department. I have worked across those areas clinically for the last 20 plus years. Hard to remind myself that I'm that old. And so in intensive care, we basically are with the families the entire time, talking through what's happening. We go to all the met calls or code calls. We attend all the resuscitations. I would be involved in the death of a child every four days. And sometimes that's a an acute death and sometimes that's after we have palliated a child who has a chronic illness or an injury. I believe myself to be rather robust. I believe myself to be very resilient. It's not like things happen that are sad and I feel hugely impacted. I do always feel sad, some places far more than others. I guess today what we're going to talk about is when you feel really psychologically and physically impacted. You've described there, you, in Australia, you call it, it's a social worker, but in the UK, that's a term that we use for slightly differently. Really, you're a counsellor to some extent, a patient advocate, a staff support. You're there to look after the patients, the relatives, the staff who are looking after them, to counsel them through, to help with communication, all of those things. You're part of a child dying every four days. That is not a normal experience necessarily, but that is your experience of what you do for work. But again, what we're going to talk about is 
on the background of all of that, what you cope with normally, which you cope with amazingly, there's something that happened that just took you by surprise. And even you, on the background of all that experience, struggled to deal with. I think what we're going to discuss today is far more than just having a bad day or having a run of bad days or feeling disillusioned about the work. This is when you truly feel like you are no longer sure you're going to be able to continue the work, where you feel real dread about going back to work, where you're ruminating constantly about an event or a series of events where it's disrupting your sleep, it's disrupting your life. It really feels like a mental health crisis. I think all of us at times have very difficult days. All of us are exposed to things that are tragic, sad, frightening, horrific, confronting. It feels awful in the moment within a couple of days you've recovered. I guess for me, when I think about my own episode and just in reflecting and talking with others, that absolutely made me go from being high-functioning, feeling really well to feeling completely broken. In the blog, you talk about the fact that you don't believe you had a mental illness, a psychological illness when this happened to you. What is it that made you feel that this was not an illness, but something different to that? And when can we recognise when we are actually psychologically ill? You know, it's interesting. I think if I'd went to the GP, they probably would have diagnosed me with something. For me, I desperately hope that I would recover. I certainly am not opposed to going to the GP. For me, I think it was definitely a mental health crisis. I don't think it was a mental illness. I don't think I was depressed. I don't think I had post-traumatic stress disorder. I think that I was exposed to something at work. It was just something so confronting and so horrific that I felt a level of responsibility for that completely broke my spirit, I guess you could say, that left me highly emotional, tremor in my hands, crying for nights on end. I kept functioning in that I went to work and I believed that I was safe to work. However, I think it was taking an enormous emotional toll on me at the time. So the details, as we said, are on the blog post and are there for you to read. And let's just take it that at that period in time, you were broken. And I've been in a similar place to you for completely different reasons. But at work, I had a similar type thing happen to me. What we want to talk about now is practical advice about what we can actually do both in the moment when it's just happening to you and over the days, weeks and months after to find a place where you get to recovery. And you detail these beautifully in the blog, but let's just talk about a few of them. If we can, let's start on the day where you're knocked off your feet. What would you be your advice, both with your expertise and everything you've done for your PhD and having gone through it? What would you do on the day? What would you recommend people do to get through that first day when you just feel like You don't know where to turn. It's only in reflection that you can be wise about these things. I wrote the blog one when I was in the midst of the horror of it all. I think it was day two in the middle of the night. I hadn't slept for nearly three days and I was in in an absolute crisis. And at the time, I, I kept seeking people out and then withdrawing. I really exercised a lot. I, look, I was just lost. I don't think I knew what I was doing. And I I guess the main message that I can say now in hindsight is that my judgment was dreadfully impaired. It was dreadfully impaired. I 
wasn't responsible for what happened. I felt responsible. And so it didn't matter how many people told me this wasn't you, you did everything that you could, don't feel guilty, I did. There are times in our career where people make a human error, where systems fail and something dreadful happens. And it doesn't matter how you get to be here. I guess what I want to say to you, if you are in the throes of a crisis because of work, Chances are, like me, your judgment is grossly impaired. You are paranoid and vulnerable. You believe that no one could possibly understand, no one could possibly support you, no one could possibly forgive you or see you in the same light. You're wrong. If you are in the very acute phases of this, please, please go and talk to someone. If you feel like it can't be your partner or it can't be a friend or it can't be a colleague, make it a GP, make it a therapist, make it your parent, make it someone who can sit with you and and know that they're not going to be able to remove your pain in the acuteness of it all. What we have to get used to if we're going to attend to our own well-being is to sit with the distress. What I went through was so completely abnormal. I don't believe those same events will ever, ever occur to me again in my working life. Will I see other things that are frightening and terrible and traumatic and sad? Yes, I will. Will I see that? No, I won't. So I was having a completely normal reaction to something that was horrifically abnormal. And you describe a complete paralysis of decision making. You were unable to do anything practical to to find a way through it. I think there'll be people listening who would think to themselves that I'm going to stop now. I'm going to move on and listen to something else because this is never going to happen to me. Hopefully it won't. But probably what we're going to say now is, is think about what you would do if this does happen. Make a plan and use some of the hints and tips we're about to talk about now. Sit down, spend half an hour to make a plan about what you would do. Put it in a drawer. And if this should happen or something similar, you know where to go to get it. Liz is one of the most capable people I know. I'm moderately able to function on a human basis most days. But both of us have had things that meant that for a period of time, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know where to turn. And I wish I'd had a plan. So let's think about that plan, Liz. If you were going to advise somebody now, they have a piece of paper in their drawer, they're in that moment of huge crisis that knocked them off their feet, not every day, a once in a career thing. What does it say on it? What is item one on the top of that list? Item number one should probably be connection. In the moment, you really don't think anyone can possibly get it. And I think I was a bit narcissistic about it. I think there are lots of people and so many people in critical care and across health in general could have these experience from a varied amount of sources. I think what we do is quite unique compared to other occupations. It's not like we're upset at a at a grocery store because we've dropped a 20 jars of pasta sauce and someone can say, just go back out the back and compose yourself and you don't have to see the customers for the rest of the day. It's very rare that these things even happen at the end of the shift. These things happen in the context of our work and we have to just keep going. When someone's in that level of crisis, listening is really important. Not to placate, you know, and say it'll be okay, this wasn't your fault. Allow the person to kind of divulge the story without interrupting. I think when we see people upset, our first instance is to shoo them away. Like, you know, like you need to look after yourself, off you go, off you go. 
However, all of us need to respond differently to that. And that's why I say part of our well-being plan has to be this acute self-awareness. The other thing that I think really saved me in the moment was routine. I'm, I'm quite a obsessive person at the best of times and I do have a routine. However, during this, I, I couldn't have functioned without the routine. It didn't matter if I'd slept or I hadn't slept. At quarter to 5 a.m., I still got up. I still went to the gym. I tried to take as many decision-making variances, I guess, out of my life because I was just paralyzed all the time. What will I cook for dinner? I can't decide. Where, what, what am I going to wear tomorrow at work? I can't decide. So I went back to what I used to do when my kids were little. I made a meal plan on the Sunday and then I bought the groceries according to that and I stuck to it because when you are in crisis, you've really got cognitive fatigue. You're in complete survival mode and making any decisions beyond that was just, it was too hard. And I guess this is why, you know, we're saying make a plan now because at the time when you're in the absolute midst of the crisis, it's impossible to make decisions. You talk about connection and from my experience, I think what I wanted to do was go and hide. So this takes real bravery to get out there and go and, and we're not expecting solutions from the person you go and see. And actually, I would start off by saying, you can't sort my problem out, but please just sit and listen or just be with me. You don't even have to listen. Just help me get through the day. Being on your own in this situation is, I think, potentially incredibly dangerous and maybe even destructive. But for many, that's what you want to do. I wanted to hide away. I'd been attacked on a hugely personal level and I wanted to just crawl into a corner because I felt workless and useless. I presume there was a period of time where you're allowed a little bit of self-pity, but that can't last long because you just, life goes on. You look out the window and cars are still driving up and down the road and your kids still need picking up from school. So you have to be able to function. With connection, who would you go to? What would you say? Um, how do you frame that conversation with them to make it what you want? You know, I have said before publicly and certainly on our podcast about having a, a work wife and a work husband and that in the moment was very helpful. I have some long-term friends. I, I honestly didn't tell many people at all. I had an element of shame, guilt. I felt completely exposed and I pride myself on being very resilient. I pride myself. I feel like I've got a public persona about being resilient and being robust. I felt shattered into a thousand different pieces where I couldn't even find bits of me to put back together. That's why I'm saying my, my judgment was impaired. I probably told a couple of people and I was lucky that they just hung in there with me. When they rang and I didn't pick up the phone, they just kept on ringing. I'm also really lucky that I live with two teenage boys and they are an enormous pullback to to world because I had to keep cooking for them and I had to keep washing clothes and folding and ironing and I was very teary in front of them and they kept saying, what's wrong, this isn't like you, do you want to talk to someone, can we help you mum? And it kind of just kept me putting one foot in front of the other and I was really mindful then, I guess, of people who live alone. I'm hugely extroverted and for the first time in my life I didn't want to speak to anyone at all. Have a few core people. Talk to them now. Maybe share these blogs and say, you know, these are the sorts of things that could happen in my career. Would you be my person? Could you be there for me? Go and see a GP. Find a therapist in advance. All of these things are ways 
of providing a safety net or a safeguard should you get into trouble. You don't need to tap into your connections only when you're broken. You don't need to just have a therapist or go and visit a GP only when you're broken. I think this job can make us wobble quite a lot and it's good to put these things into practice way before there's a crisis. I'm going to pick up on one word you used then which was shame. That idea of shame, I know I can relate to that hugely. I felt completely disrupted and like I'd lost a core part of my being. That shame part is really difficult. That's hard to deal with. Have you got rid of that part of that yet? Or did that take a lot of time before that went away? I feel very teary, just even recounting it. Like I'm tachycardic at the moment. I can feel my voice is croaky. You know, shame is one of the most powerful emotions that a person can endure. And for me, that shame component is is still very prominent, I guess, in how I feel because I feel like let I feel like I was powerless and you know, that shame component is something that for all of this, this is not a passive thing. You will want to lie in a bed and never get up and you can't afford to do that. You can't afford to do that whether you have children or pets or family members that love you or friends or because of your job, but you can't afford to do it for yourself. This has been an ugly, torturous very difficult fight back and it it hasn't been passive. I, I think that's the other thing is is that you have to literally claw your way back from this. And so when you feel that shame being triggered and I'm you know I'm hot here and everything, it's not it's not a menopausal thing. I'm way too young for that Ian. But when you feel that you have to fight back because a lot of that for me in particular, it's irrational. This was not my responsibility and yet that shame response is so huge. So I have to have this internal battle with myself where I think, come on, stop being such a narcissist about it. You know, there were system failures, you alerted, you tried everything in your power. You've got to ask yourself what belongs to me, what belongs to the system, what belongs to this unique component of this job and even if you were 100% responsible in some ways, you are never 100% responsible when you belong to a team, a unit, a department, a hospital. All of us can make a mistake. And, you know, someone reached out to me on Twitter and said, this is how awful your work can get. Why would we do it? And I guess that was the other big thing that happened for me during this shame crisis is I had to reflect of like, why am I doing this? I have lots of friends who have careers that even earn lots more money than me, don't have this level of responsibility, don't have this burden of responsibility. You're not exposed to things. And for me, I still love the job, still passionate about it, still love the team, still love the children, still love the families. I'm humbled by it and I wanted to fight my way back, not because I need to pay a mortgage, but because I bloody love it and I didn't want to give up. In your blog, you describe yourself as being maybe 80% recovered. Let's now focus on what 
we can do to actively. And I think that, again, is really important. You can't this will not solve itself on its own. And you are the person who can get through this. What can you actively do? We've talked about routine. And I think that works for me as well. I know how thrown off I get when the children are on holiday from school because all of a sudden my day-to-day routine is different and I don't like that. Now, for others, that slightly off-the-wall, little bit more laid-back thing might work. But you, routine worked for you. So getting up, going to the gym, preparing meals, doing the shopping, making things more regular. So we've got routine. You've got to keep that going while you're trying to survive through this episode. What other things would you recommend to people up to try and get through to help their recovery? So for me, I guess people kept looking to know that I was okay and I did a lot of fake it till you make it. I put a smile on my face, I came to work, I kept functioning. I kept saying to myself over and over and over again, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can do this, I think I can get through the day, I think I can get to lunchtime. I didn't try to look too far ahead you know, I didn't try to think, what if I still feel like this in three weeks time? I kept thinking, let's just get to lunch. Look at you, you're going, you're doing it. Let's just get to the end of the day. I would then get home and think, okay, I've survived another day. Let's get the food on. I tried not to have big plans, big goals. I tried not to overwhelm my things. So I think I kept, I I know that neurons that fire together wire together and I didn't want to sink further into the hole. So I kept saying, I'm doing well. This is an achievement. What I've done today is good. I'm okay. I wasn't sleeping for several weeks at all very well. I tried not to be panic stricken about that. So I would try to go to bed at the same time. I literally exercised myself to exhaustion and that won't work for everyone, but worked for me. I'd go to bed and I'd try and do some quiet meditations I tried to read books that were really boring, that would put me off to sleep. When I woke after two hours, I tried not to panic. I didn't allow myself to look at any screens. I tried to be really disciplined and I tried not to beat myself up any more than I already was. So you've got exercise and sleep. These are the basic tenets of functioning generally, and you've got to keep a hold of those, haven't you? Yes. Were you tempted to medicate, whether alcohol, pills, prescriptions? Would you suggest that? For me, no. And I I guess I said this in the blog. I'm sure, you know, a lot of the people who are listening to this are medicos and nurses and the opportunity to self-medicate is huge or to self-diagnose is huge. Your judgment is hugely impaired. If you really think you need medication, go and see a doctor. Go and see a doctor and get a, a real opinion about where you're at. If I had gotten to a point where it literally had been days and I'd not had sleep, I would have went and saw my GP. I wasn't sleeping well, I wasn't sleeping for long, but I was getting some sleep. I absolutely avoided alcohol. It was a massive temptation. God, I could have just (laughs) opened a bowl of vodka and tipped it down my throat and hoped that the whole thing numbed and went away. I didn't want to. I also know that with alcohol, it gives you a massive high and then a terrible downer and then I would have missed exercise and my routine would have been out and I hate to sound like I was completely obsessed about sticking to my routine but it worked for me and I wasn't prepared to do anything that could wreck that so I didn't touch one drop of alcohol during the whole event I knew I was right on the edge and I did nothing that could have tipped me over now that doesn't mean that I wasn't tempted and I'm definitely not a saint I guess I was frightened 
I was frightened of myself. And I would say to people, please, please, please be very, very careful with alcohol, drugs, illicit or or otherwise um, during this event. Now, I approach mine a little differently, partly through necessity, but I went to see my GP. And I think here we need to give GP some credit. Absolutely. We In secondary care, we can be quite sniffy about what general practice is and what GPs do. But I received huge support from my GP. And the biggest thing I think I actually got was a validation mm. that what I was feeling was not acceptable, but was OK and difficult. Because somebody was able to say to me, I've got qualifications, I've got, I'm medically trained, and yes, this is really hard. And that meant a huge amount to me, actually, because otherwise I was thinking, I'm just being weak here. I'm just being a bit crap. Because look at all my colleagues, they're all still at work and they're all fine. And I bet they've gone through much worse than this. I'm, my GP said no. And I actually did get signed off work with stress, whatever that is. But I did for a period of time. But my GP was really understanding. At no point did I go on to medication or do anything. But just to have a medical person tell me, God, that sounds pretty tough, actually. I'm not surprised you're struggling. I'm here and we'll get through this. I, I have used my GP in the past. For me, I also in the last year have been seeing a counsellor almost once a week and I already had an established relationship with her. I made an emergency appointment with her when this happened. I saw her twice, I think, in the first week and then I went back to her every single week. She also offered me, which was very generous of her, that I could ring her at any time, I could email her at any time, and I didn't need to do that out of hours. But when I spoke to my therapist, she was exceptionally empathic, concerned, kept reinforcing about an actual fact how robust and strong I was, that my reactions were completely normal. And that validation is massive to have another person say, it's not you, you're not weak, this is not a deficit in yourself, this is an event that is enormous. Liz, so far we've talked about a number of things that can help in the in the moment. We've talked about having a plan, and that will be individual to you, but that talks about having connection and finding that work husband, work friend, or just a friend who you can go to. They don't have to be at work, but just somebody who can call. Having a routine that worked for me and Liz, it might work for you, but you've got to keep going. You've got to be active. You've got to keep doing what you're doing. Life will go on around you and you have to be a part of that. You have to feed yourself. You have to sleep. If you exercise, that's great. And you have to keep doing those things. Keep that life going. Don't just let yourself crawl into a corner. And Liz, you described faking it till you make it. And I think there is a lot of to be said for that. And the thing I found hardest was I could fake it in front of the children. God knows I didn't actually tell them what was going on for six weeks. And that's partly because of the shame of it. I didn't want my kids to think I wasn't the super dad I wanted them to believe I was. But after you faked it, which is tiring, and you go home and there's no one to fake it for anymore. And there's an hour before bed. That's the bit I found hard. What tips would you have about getting through that part when you're on your own, when you've expended all your energy and you just don't know what to do next. I mean, some people would find huge comfort in mind-numbing television, listening to music, doing meditation. For me, I did lots of late-night walking, either at the gym or meeting a friend, and I'm sure people thought I was insane that I was at the gym walking it from 10 to 11 at night, but it just helped get rid of some of that nervous energy for me. 
you can't be prescriptive about this. And for lots of people, you know, they'll say, I run to control my stress or I do this to control my stress. In this, you have to utilize everything you've ever used before and then some. And you have to keep fighting, keep trying until you find something that works for you. Also, you need this enormous amount of compassion to yourself. You need to speak over the ruminating voice that's saying you're a loser, you're a failure. You know, I think I said in the blog, everything I'd ever done poorly at, everything that I'd ever been ashamed of just came piling in. You know, it's just this pick, pick, pick. And I had to say, just stop it. Just stop it. I was absolutely powerless at the time when this event happened. I haven't been powerless since. I have had to claw my way back. And and there's something to be said about that. Liz, I think one other thing I've learned is that the world moves very quickly. And often your episode or your troubles can be forgotten by the rest of humanity and the world very fast. But you need to be patient. You and I have described ourselves as not quite there yet, not fully recovered. But to be fully healed takes a long time. And you'll feel frustrated that everyone else seems to have forgotten it. They seem to have gone on with their lives. And here you are stuck in the middle of this thing. And I would say be patient. I think this takes months, if not years, to fully understand and get through. And as people who work in critical care, we're used to doing things in hours. If I wasn't cured and helped within four hours in A&E in England, I'm in trouble. And I find that frustrating. But patience is required, isn't it? And it takes time. How do you keep going when everyone else has moved on? You know, one of the biggest lessons for me in all of this has been self-compassion. We have to treat ourselves like we would treat our patients or our friends or our loved ones. We wouldn't expect if someone told us a story that was similar to what had happened to ourselves that they would be over in an hour or a day or a week or a month. We would stay open and compassionate and caring and mindful and gentle of that person for as long as it took. And that's the way I'm trying to treat myself. I was very strict about my routines. However, I tried to be very compassionate and gentle with myself and think this is worth it. It's worth it to get it right. I'm worth it. You know, that's even hard to say out loud now, but I'm worth it. I I owe my children, I owe my team, I owe my family, my friends, and mostly I owe myself the time to recover. I guess our message from St. Lemons to you is that we may never meet you. We can promise you that you are important. We can promise you that this does not need to be your life story. When you have an event like this at work, it's very easy to believe that this is now your career narrative. And it's not. You have to force yourself to think of the hundreds, for some of you, thousands of people that you have helped in the past, the people who long after you you have forgotten their names, their cases, their illnesses, they have not forgotten you. And then you have to think of all of the people who will come in the future and be they have their lives enriched, saved, helped in any way possible because of your skills, your knowledge, your compassion. And that's why you have to fight your way back. And If you really get to a dark place where you feel like you need to take a break, take a break. There's no shame in that. Again, it does not mean the end of your career. It just means a pause. 
And even if it's a change in career, it's not the end. It's just a change. And I guess that's my big take-home message is that this is what we can say worked for us. You find something that works for you. You believe that you're important. You believe that your narrative actually is much bigger than work, that you're someone's sister or brother or daughter or son or cousin or aunt or uncle or parent, a lover, a friend. You're much more than a health professional and you're much more than the event that got you here. Liz, I don't think I can put it any better than that. Please do read the blog posts if you haven't seen them yet. Thanks for listening.